hello and welcome back to another episode of the Practical Planner Podcast. I am your co-host, Thomas Kopelman, with my other co-host, Ann Rhodes, Chief Legal Officer of Wealth.com. And what we're really going to talk about today is, you know, all the estate planning numbers that everybody needs to know for 2024. I think it's our job, and I know that Wealth has put out a chart online that everybody can go look at. We'll make sure to link it in the show notes. But as a financial advisor, I think we have to know all of these numbers. I mean, at least for me, I've started annual reviews and these numbers have come up a lot, either from gifting to 529 plans, super funding to thinking about how much exemption that we have left to use. I think there's a lot of numbers that everybody needs to know and, you know, who better to bring these up than us and specifically you. You know, I do encourage you to go take a look at the chart that Wealth publishes. Um, We carefully curated the numbers that are shown in that chart. The IRS revenue procedure that was published in 2023 with the 2024 inflation-adjusted numbers is 30 pages long. It has everything in it, right? And so we went through with a fine-tooth comb and really pulled out the numbers that matter for estate, gift, GST tax purposes, and sort of just any wealth transfer uh, projects that you may have. So I do encourage you to go look at it. I like to think of it as broken down into sort of four categories. And so we'll kind of go over those four at the beginning of this episode so you know what's coming. Um, And you can maybe um, uh, pay attention more selectively to the ones that matter to you the most. The first category, as uh, Thomas sort of hinted at, is the um, annual uh, exclusion from gift taxes. So this is the number where if your client makes a gift, um, you know, each individual makes a gift under that number, uh, you don't even have to report that number to the IRS. So we'll talk a little bit about how to leverage that. It's sort of the easy way to start gifting. Then the second category is the larger exemption amount. And it's actually two different numbers. Uh, it One is the unified estate and gift tax exemption amount. Um, and then the other is the GST exemption amount. They happen to match, but if your client has started gifting, they may no longer match for your client. And so some things to keep in mind, especially as we're looking at the sunset of the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in December on December 31st of 2025. So I'm sure some of you may have those, um, you know, all try high net worth clients who are really looking to take advantage of that number. Third category is sort of a little bit about income tax planning. You know, there's a, an income tax bracket also for trusts and estates. And so it's important for you to sort of understand why that matters when you have an individual and maybe an irrevocable trust paying its own taxes. You know, what are the uh, discrepancies? You know, what what are the planning opportunities? And then the fourth category, I would say, are like all of the international numbers. So the rest of kind of that chart, if you look at it, um, you know, is non-U.S. citizen this, non-U.S. citizen that, you know, transfers from foreign persons. They kind of all get lumped into one category in my mind. I just want to give you a sense for why they matter, why you might want to keep them in mind because they're just not the same as for purely U.S.-based planning. All right. Well, let's just start diving right into it. Let's go right into the yearly gifting numbers that everybody needs to know. Thomas, this is where I feel like, you know, you see this day in, day out. So I will ask you to, you know, jump in here with your expertise. But what I will say is this year it has risen to $18,000. What it is, is that each U.S. individual can give to any other individual 
$18,000. If you are married, of course, you can double that number, right? $36,000. And you and your spouse together can make up to $36,000 of gifts in value to anybody in the world. And the IRS would just close its eyes and say, you don't even need to report that on a Form 709 or the gift tax return. And uh, that's totally okay. So Thomas, how are you seeing it being used? I think for me, just working with the client base that I'm working with, I think one is talking about 529s um, and that goes into the five-year super funding, right? I mean, I have a lot of clients who had really good income earning years last year. We have a bunch of cash on the sidelines. We're thinking of what to do with and, you know, fully doing their 529 in one year um, can be really impactful. I think, you know, I, every advisor here should kind of know these annual gifting numbers, but they should also know, right, if you go above and beyond that, it doesn't create a taxable event unless you've used all of your lifetime exemption. You know, this is something I spend a lot of times explaining to clients. And then the other one that you hit on too is that, you know, this is to everybody. So mom and dad can give to one child each 18,000. Mom and dad can give to another child. They can give to, you know, grandkids. They can give to whoever. People get really confused about this thinking like that's the amount that they can give per year. Um, but I, there also are other expenses, right? So there are things that parents can pay for that the dollar amounts don't count towards this, right? Education, healthcare expenses, you know, what other ones or in your head on that? One very popular one. Actually, there are two of them. So um, the IRS hasn't necessarily blessed this, but it's hard to police, to be honest, and everybody does it, you know. There's a, so a couple of other things. If you go on vacation with your kids and you are there, right? So this is not just paying for their vacation to go somewhere without you, but if you happen to be there, those dollars you spend on them don't count towards that gift. That's a good one. Um, yeah. Another one that's interesting too is actually paying the taxes on any trust for which you are still considered the grantor from an income tax perspective. So you set up an irrevocable trust for education purposes for all of your descendants. You're still alive today, right? And so you've set up the trust so that it's considered a grantor trust. Actually, the taxes that you still pay on the investments within that trust, um, when you pay those taxes, they don't count as gifts. So that, those are some important techniques actually used in um, estate planning, that grantor trust status. I think one other one I want to add to that just a planning thing for advisors. So, you know, I have plenty of clients who are first generation wealth. I have plenty of clients who, you know, have some pretty wealthy parents. And I think one thing that we're talking about is, you know, I think these, these conversations are happening more between parents and their kids of like, you know, here's kind of the wealth level we have. Maybe here's some of the inheritance that you might have. And one thing I actually urge some of my clients to talk to their parents about if, if they're already having these type of conversations is around like maybe helping gift now while they're alive. One thing I really admire about what my grandma did is she was pretty wealthy, but her big thought was I'd rather impact my family's lives while I'm around and can see that. And so she did a lot of yearly gifting. She helped pay for college. Um, you know, she just did things to help not just pass away and handle hand off the money and say like, hopefully they do something good, but watch the impact on a year to year basis, especially knowing that most people, if your parents are going to live to their mid eighties, you're getting your inheritance in your fifties or sixties. It's a lot more impactful than receiving some potentially in your twenties, thirties, or forties when you might have more of a need for those funds. Not only that, Thomas, and we will come back to the annual exclusion gifting because there's a couple more things to say there, but on your grandmother, what she did that was so smart and that we as, you know, estate planners try to convince our clients to do is, you know, any dollar of your exemption, your gift 
exemption that you use today is going to be invested and appreciate over the course of your life. So that same dollar you give today will actually be like two or five dollars of exemption if you were to pass away at that time, giving the same asset, right? And so you actually, you know, because of time value of money and all of that, it's so much better to use your, you know, like 12 plus million dollar exemption, I mean, 13 million now, today, and have that grow to, let's say, even $25 million at your death, right? You've just gifted away at your death $25 million of exemption, basically, right? So that's that's really powerful planning. I got to stay on this topic because I had the same conversation last week. So I, I have a household who they're like 20 million net worth in their early 40s. So like very, very wealthy. And, you know, they've only set up a revocable trust. And we're like, that's great. You know, that's great. Step one, they'd never worked with an advisor before. And one thing, you know, I brought up this year is like, this is the year we probably really start looking into doing some deeper estate planning. And their thought was, okay, like we get that. We know we need to do this. We know we should set up some irrevocable type trust. What if the exemption change doesn't happen, right? Is it really that important for us to do? And that was the big point that I had is, you know, let's say 70% of their wealth is in one company, a very, very valuable company that has grown a ton over the last 10 years. And that was the big piece I brought up is like every one or two years, right? Like even if the exemption doesn't change, the fact that we could put a million dollars of this stock in there that has a price target of 50% higher than next year becomes really impactful because a million dollars might be worth two in five years and it might be worth four in 10 years and et cetera. And so you only had to use 1 million of that total exemption to potentially end up, you know, long-term getting five, 10, you know, million and above outside of your estate. We'll discuss that a little bit too when we jump to that second category, right? We've started talking about using that um, the the bigger exemption amount uh, on the annual gift exclusion number. I just wanted to mention a couple of other ways that you might want to consider using that. One very common method is the islet, the irrevocable life insurance trust. If you have a client who has you know a pretty big insurance policy, they're paying premiums. If they stick that into a trust. And the trust names, you know, a bunch of beneficiaries, the spouse, the kids, et cetera. You can actually multiply that annual exclusion number, right? So let's say there are five people, like a spouse and, and four kids. Then all of a sudden that $18,000 per person um, gift becomes a 90K um, gift to the trust, potentially, where they can pay insurance premiums. And those count towards the annual exclusion uh, amount. So that's a very powerful way to that. Right now, it's a little less popular because, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but the interest rate between family transfers is actually pretty high. It's like 4.18% uh, for February 2024. You're talking about AFR rates? Yes, the applicable federal rate. Exactly. So that, for our listeners, is the rate that the government says, at a minimum, you have to charge for long-term loans between family members and compounded annually. There are slightly different rates for you know different compounding, quarterly, monthly, whatever it may be. And so for your, let's say you have a client who's pretty wealthy, uh, who doesn't want to use any tax exemption to make that transfer, right? So it cannot be a gift. The IRS says, for us to not consider this amount of money for you to have given to your beneficiary, for us to not consider that to be a gift, you have to charge some sort of interest to your beneficiary. So let's say mom and dad want to put a $1 million down payment to help pay for you know a new home or something for their kid. 
for that one million to not eat into their gift tax exemption, so that's the 13.16 million, um, they need to charge an interest on the two million to their child. And if you did that transaction in February of 2024, the AFR is 4.18% for that interest rate. All of that is to say that interest rate potentially could be forgiven, right? Depending on what your principal is, whatever the amortized payment is on that loan, mom and dad, I mean, you still need to have the paperwork in place, et cetera. But at the end of the year, maybe when the child comes with the check, mom and dad can be like, you know what? It's okay. We'll, we'll consider this to be our annual exclusion. I think that's like level 2.0 planning, right? I think most people don't know that you can do the loans to the family. I think I've come across a lot of families doing this and they're like not charging them interest or they don't really have an agreement set up to make sure this is done properly. But I haven't actually heard very many people talk about the idea of, okay, million dollar loan, AFR rates, you know, 4%, $40,000 of interest a year, plus potentially amortization, husband and wife, you know, they might be able to forgive all of that under the annual exclusion and just move to the next year. Like that's really smart. Exactly. What's really important when you do planning like that, that's intra-family wealth transfers, is you have to go consult with an attorney to put in place the paperwork. I've never seen anybody do that, to be honest. So <laughs> Usually if there's you know a home involved, there needs to be a mortgage on the home that mom and dad actually take out on the property. So it does take a little bit of paperwork on the front end, but that planning can be so, so powerful if you have a client who's wealthy enough to do that kind of transaction. I know, just sticking on this, just for a question I know advisors have when I've talked about this is, so there are short-term rates, right? There's zero to three years, I think, on the IRS website, and then there's beyond that. But those are like, when you sign this agreement and set it up, you basically keep that rate, right? So if you would have done it two years ago, really low rates, you know, on a 10-year loan, that how this is structured, but rates are different this year, you can still, it's not a variable interest rate, right? But it's technically, still. you could refinance lower, right? So you can lock in low rates at good times. And then, you know, potentially if you did this last year and then by the end of this year, they offer our rates three or low fours, you could potentially just refinance that loan pretty easily. That's the thing about this interest rate. It is fixed year, right? And it can be a 10-year mortgage or whatever, 30-year mortgage that you're giving to your child. Uh, but you've locked in the rate for the moment in time where you made that uh, transaction, like you first, you know, entered into the promissory note or that mortgage. Um, that being said, you know, this is mom and dad, like this is somebody who's close to you. It's not a third party bank making this transaction. So you can have all sorts of quite favorable terms for the beneficiary, for the borrower in there. So I'll give you a couple of ideas. One is, you know, a refi. And so the refinancing, maybe you charge like a small, you know, amount of fee or something like that. Make it close to what something a bank would do, but you can just be a little more generous, right? That what the bank would do. Um, the second thing that you can do, and we actually had a client do this. So oftentimes mortgages are not transferable, right? So if today your starter, your child's starter home is, let's say, I mean, like a $1 million, you know, super nice condo, um, but then you know that eventually, you know, they'll get married, they'll have kids, and you want to keep the mortgage rate that you had, you could actually put in a clause, and we did this for a client at Perkins Coie, actually, where they get to just put the mortgage and, and put it on a different property. So you'll remortgage the property, but it follows the child as opposed to following the property, right? And so think of clients who did this planning when the AFR was like in the 1% or 2%. And this was just like three years ago, four years ago. Those clients, if they had a clause like this, 
that mortgage has just followed the kid through the 30-year term. So it can be really, really powerful planning. And I'm sure you can do interest only if you want. You can do interest only for five years and move it. I mean, I'm, there's a lot of favorable things you can do here. I don't think, I don't know if I've ever heard an advisor talk about AFR rates in general. I've had to bring it up with like three or four clients, but I think this should be kind of a call out. Like if you're working with high income or especially high net worth families, this is really good planning that can be done that like parents are have more than enough money they ever need. Sometimes they, you just want to help their family. This really helps them. They save hundreds of thousands in interest. You know, they potentially, if they're over the exemption amount, can help without it being taxed. There's a bunch of good things that can happen from that. One of the interesting things that you'll see too with the AFR is that it really underpins a lot of the planning in the wealth transfer space that you'll be doing. And so, you know, to a certain extent, for example, like if you're doing grats, cuprits, like certain of these like cool trusts, right, that have an interest rate component, you know, that actually is responsive to what's going on in the rest of the world, right? And so the AFR, other rates that come into play. What's interesting here is, you know, the Fed has uh, kind of signaled that they plan on bringing down interest rates, right? And so what you're seeing is for February uh, 2024, the rate is 4.18%. Today, in January of 2024, if you were to do one of these transactions at the you know long-term annual rate, it would actually be 4.54%. So already you're starting to see you know the IRS, the Treasury Department responding to some of the pronouncements that the Fed is putting out there that interest rates are going to be decreasing. So um, that kind of brings us, I think, Thomas, to talking about the, the exemption amount for gift and estate tax. And so for some of your clients who are really looking forward to doing some planning because they have enormous exemption amounts, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about individuals having 13.61 million and couples together having 27.22 million together to, you know, gift away if they're in the kind of ultra high Just a small amount of money very small. But I mean, this is like, historically, it's never been higher than this. The only deal better than this historically that you could get was in 2010 or in years where there was no estate tax <laughs> imposed. So honestly- then you go farther back, right? The early 2000s, wasn't it like two or three million? It's been as low as 350,000, I think. So this is just like historically the highest you've ever seen. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are thinking about how to power up that number, right? Um, by doing gift sale transactions, for example, where if you put that initial seed amount of 27.22 million into a trust, and usually it's two trusts, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. But let's say, you know, you form some sort of structure, a trust to receive that asset, that trust becomes a good uh, debtor, like it, it can go out there and borrow money, right, with $27 million. And so it can borrow money from the original, you know, gifters, this is mom and dad, right, who are doing these transactions, and, um, you know, debt to um, uh, like the, the seed amount can be as high as like nine times. So all of a sudden your initial trust could have as much as $272 million, um, by leveraging this tax exemption. And so obviously this is a transaction, like on the upper end that you do for like the ultra, ultra high net worth clients. Um, but that's something people do, right? Um, at a, another kind of level, a lot of people are thinking about slots. 
SLAT stands for Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. This is for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to, you know, supercharge that $27.22 million gift to, uh, you know, beneficiaries who are in lower generations. This is for someone who's like, I still need to enjoy, you know, that money uh, that I made. I can't just part with it outright. And so in that case, they might form a trust for the spouse because, if you think about it, if you've gifted away assets to your spouse, is your spouse really going to cut you off from enjoying those assets? Probably not, right? And so, um, you know, we can talk about divorce, separation, all that, but you you can have spouses who gift to each other. Um, this kind of planning, the slap planning needs to be done incredibly carefully, but what it allows people to do is continue to access the funds while using their full exemption amount before it decreases in 2026. As I say, I think that's probably the most common trust structure that we've been talking about with clients. And But I also think it's something that like people need to get right. I, I had somebody um, respond to one of my posts this week. He's like a founder of a business. He was like, brought up slats. And I was like, totally, slats are really great. You just really have to make sure they're not identical assets and they're probably not in identical states. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh no. Like if you just did any of this, but you know, you didn't do it correctly, right? They can't be identical. And that's something, I don't know. I think the, I don't, nobody's writing these on their own. So you would assume the estate planning attorney helping draft these at least knows that basis. Cause I, I know for us, when we're at the estate planning attorneys, it's always different states, different assets, different years. Those are like the three things that they want to hit on. Absolutely. So we can have a whole episode on slots. Today's episode is going to be dense. It's going to hit you with a lot of tax, vocabulary, et cetera, and numbers. So if you want to hear in greater detail some of these planning strategies, we can definitely talk about those. Slots, the bottom line is Wealth.com is not going to do slats. I'll just be honest with you. You need to have attorneys who know what they're doing, um, you know, who you need to be represented, because, especially if you're going to be gifting assets between the spouses, right? And especially if those assets are community property to start, um, because you bet the IRS is scrutinizing these right now. There's so many of them. And the IRS is kind of, you know, if you think about substance over form in tax, right? Like you gifting assets to your spouse and then having your spouse gift assets back to you. You know, that crisscrossing of assets, like the IRS is going to really look at that and be like, did you truly make a gift? Or is this, or can I just ignore all the transactions and say, you guys just kept everything in your own hands. You didn't successfully use your exemption. So unwinding that would be disastrous to the planning. So just make sure that you're very careful and that you have an attorney who knows what they're doing with these slots. Another thing to be careful about with the slots is income tax planning. Remember we mentioned this grantor trust kind of idea. Um, grantor trust is where any income generated by that trust, by the assets inside the trust, need to be paid by somebody. Is it the trust paying the, the, the taxes or is it you as the creator of the trust continuing to pay those taxes? Slots by and large you continue yourself to pay those taxes. And so if you did this transaction because you really wanted to use your exemption, but you still need to live on the assets, do you have enough in your own hands to continue paying the income taxes, right? That there's a tax burden still. And so all of a sudden, if you need to have distributions come up from the trust because you overfunded the trust, you don't have enough money in your own hands to keep living you know, your unfettered life and to pay taxes, you've overfunded those slots. So that can be difficult too. So how do you get those distrib distributions out? 
All of that is to say, there's some really interesting planning to be done with such a high exemption amount. I just keep listening to this. I'm like, Ian, come join me at All Street Wealth. Be a financial advisor with me. Let's do some great planning for people. Absolutely. It's it's great fun when you put one of these structures in place. So fun. Um, okay, so we've gone through yearly gifting. We've hit on the exemption numbers. We've hit on AFR borrowing rates. 529 super funding we hit on, right? I mean, I would assume most advisors know this, but they there's this rule with 529s. You can basically do five years worth of contributions in one year, right? So if it's 18,000, basically each spouse can do 36 or combined is 36 times by five. So you can do $180,000 this year without using any of that exemption amount. Um, I think the one interesting thing to think about here too is like we're doing planning for some of our clients. Like some of my clients are like, we want to cover you know, school at if they went to Dartmouth, right? Dartmouth is 80K a year today, grows at four and a half percent a year. It's gonna be $140,000 a year when our kids get there. All right, well, that's actually not gonna get you enough. Like $180,000 is not enough, but you wanna think through this, but then remember that the next five years, you only can add based on the exemption increase, right? So last year, if it was 17, this year it went 18, it freed up a couple of thousand dollars that can get added. But the five-year means that you close that five-year window of actually being able to contribute more. And I don't, I hope advisors definitely know that point. Something else to think about with the 529 accounts is that for FAFSA, right? So this is the form that uh, a child and their parents need to file when they apply for federal uh, student aid. So FAFSA does not take into account grandparents who own or who created the 529 account for the child. So you could have a situation where actually the grandparents are the ones who want to be doing some gifting. The parents themselves, you know, actually do want to apply for financial aid. And so think about also having the conversation with your clients about funding for their grandchildren. Good call. Half the people we're talking to in this, like FAFSA is not you know, in their radar, they're probably not getting much funding. If you're, most people who are super funding at 529, they probably walked out of that a long time ago. But I actually learned that this week or last week, maybe on the grandparents one and definitely something good to know. Yeah. Um, okay, what should we go into next? I think I can just briefly mention, you know, one of the lines that you'll see, um, at least in the wealth chart, is uh, when does a, an estate or a trust hit the top bracket? Uh, for income tax filings and payments um, at the federal level. I think this surprises people because this is kind of crazy. So if you are an individual, it's very high. It's in the six figures, right? And if you're filing jointly, it's even higher. It's like almost like 600,000, I think. I'd have to look up the exact number. It's very high when you hit 37% as a married filing joint taxpayer. Your trust, your irrevocable non-grantor trust, so non-grantor meaning the trust is paying its own taxes, hits that top 37% bracket at $15,200. Imagine that. Like it's completely, it goes against your own intuition if you're used to talking to individuals. So what this means is that a lot of wealth transfer planning thinks about the income tax burden if you were to have the trust pay its own taxes versus having, you know, somebody else, an owner, an individual owner of that trust paying those taxes. So again, remember where we talked about that grantor trust concept, right? So if you're making an irrevocable trust and you want to do one of these like really cool gift sale transactions to an enormous $270 million trust, 
think about what that tax burden might look like if it is the trust paying its own income taxes. So in that case, for for various different reasons, but one of them being the tax burden, uh, usually the uh, income taxes of the trust continue to be paid by the creator, this is the patriarch, matriarch of the family who funded the trust until they pass away. And so you need to account for that kind of tax burden also staying in the hands of your client just to reduce uh, the tax burden overall in the system. Probably makes sense to try to figure out when possible, how do we limit income inside of the trust as well? Yep, exactly. Oftentimes in parlance, you'll hear estate planners, other financial advisors refer to this kind of the weird nature of how trust and estates brackets are so tight, right? That you hit the top bracket at $15,000. That's called the compressed estate and trust bracket. Perfect. Um, okay. Any remaining things that you think we should go over on this episode? I, th- I think we still have the international stuff. Um, I think we could probably like hit on just like the very initial stages of this. I just want to tease a future episode. We'll see, you know, where we slate it. And if you particularly care about these cross-border issues, you can, you know, put a thumb on the scale and tell us you really, really want the episode to come earlier. But for the purposes of, you know, this discussion about the um, inflation-adjusted numbers, there are just a couple of things to note. As soon as you have a non-U.S. element, this is a non-U.S. citizen spouse, um, a non-U.S. citizen beneficiary, money coming from abroad into the United States, you know, a, a wealthy patriarch who's not a U.S. person, whatever it may be, as soon as you have a non-U.S. element, you need to take a step back and kind of rethink your initial intuitions for what you do when you have a U.S. couple and purely U.S. issues in front of you. Couple of things to note, for example, that might trip you up. A non-U.S. citizen spouse, so let's say, you know, you have spouses living here in the U.S., one person is a U.S. citizen, the other is not. All of a sudden, you may not have the unlimited marital deduction if it is the U.S. citizen passing away first and transferring assets to the non-citizen spouse. So a lot of the planning that that you are used to doing where you just assume, hey, taxes only get paid when the second spouse dies, that's no longer on the table. Couple of other things, some of the exemption amounts that apply to non-US persons transferring assets to their loved ones, those are not even inflation adjusted, right? So we always think of like, oh, you know, 13.61, like it's gonna get inflation adjusted. Mm-mm. So some of these numbers are very, very old and never got the inflation ad- adjustment. So crazy, crazy number. Um, so if you are a non-US person, so think patriarch living in Hong Kong who has a few US-based assets, think real property, um, maybe you know something else, right? Like a very nice painting located here in the US and they want to pass that on to their beneficiary here in the US, there is a $60,000 uh, exemption amount at their death. So you better do some planning uh, to make sure that the real estate, you know, which is probably valued over 60K, doesn't trip up any of the estate tax problems here in the US. So think, rethink your uh, intuitions as soon as you're, uh, you have a cross-border issue. 
Perfect. I think that was as fast as we could have possibly hit on that part. But every time I sit down with Ian, I'm always amazed at all the things that you know. Um, and I think for everybody listening, our, you know, we're talking about this ahead of time. Like our goal with this podcast is really to educate advisors on everything that they need to know about estate planning and even some other areas that are just kind of more law, I would say, um, type work. So if anybody has anything that they want us to talk about, send it in. We'll we'll add it to our list. Um, I think we're learning really quick, like this, the list of things to talk about is never ending, but we do want to make sure this is like perfect for advisors. And we're trying to start with some of the intro level stuff and then go deeper as we go. Um, but we really appreciate everybody listening and, you know, learning from us. I, I feel lucky to be learning from Ann and all of these type of things. I hope you guys do too. Um, and we just ask that you guys please rate and subscribe as, you know, we build out this podcast. Um, I think we have a really good year ahead of us of topics that are going to be helpful for all the advisors that are listening. Um, so, Anne, thanks again for the time. And everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll see you back for the next episode.